Today, we're going to do something a little different on the UCI podcast. When the pandemic hit last year, a bunch of our scholars got pulled away from their normal research to focus on COVID-19. I think a lot of the rest of us did too. Here at UCI, we've been really trying to make sure we can still have our classes and our research and everything going as the pandemic progresses. But now it's been over a year, the vaccine's being distributed, including here at UCI. And a lot of us are still working pretty nonstop to fight the pandemic, particularly in our College of Health Sciences and at UCI Health. And while I think we're all very happy to be able to help, you know, just like everybody else, we're getting pretty tired of talking about coronaviruses and we're ready to get back to our normal lives. So today we are taking a break. We are not going to talk about COVID. Instead, we are going to take you to Thailand. I'm joined today by Daniel Parker, who is one of our infectious disease specialists here at UCI who dropped his normal research and really focused on COVID over the last year. And he's done a ton for our local communities here in Orange County and particularly in Santa Ana. But we're not going to talk about that today. Instead, we are going to talk about his work with malaria and dengue and other diseases that are prevalent in Southeast Asia. And I'm Nicole Feldman. I work with our UCI news team to cover health affairs. So if you read an article over the last six months or so about COVID research, chances are pretty good that I wrote it. But when the pandemic started, I was actually living in Cambodia and had lived in Thailand for a little while before that. And Daniel and I actually both lived in Chiang Mai, which is the biggest city in Northern Thailand. So today we are gonna take you on a little tour of Southeast Asia in Thailand, Laos, Myanmar, and Cambodia. While we talk about Daniel's work on diseases in the region that I'd say are actually just as bad as COVID, but don't get talked about as much here in the US because here they've largely been eliminated. So without further ado, Daniel, welcome to the UCI podcast. Thank you. Thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here and to uh, talk about something other than COVID. Aren't we all, man? <laughs> I'm sick of this virus. <laughs> yes, I've really been looking forward to this as well. <laughs> so I'm glad we could make it happen. So I thought we might start by giving people an idea of what Northern Thailand is like. So you have lived in two parts of that area that are, are pretty different from each other in Mesat and in Chiang Mai. So give us a sense of what it was like living on the ground in these places and maybe some of the differences between them. Right. Okay. Um, I grew up in West Texas and um, so, so border towns are not new to me. And probably the best description I could give of Mesot is it, it's a border town. And like other border towns that I've visited in the U.S. and all over the place, it's got a really unique mixture of different cultures and languages and lots of interesting uh, economic activities and, and all sorts of, uh, it's just kind of got a Wild West feel to it, even though it's in Southeast Asia. Whereas Chiang Mai, Chiang Mai is also quite diverse. Um, you have a lot of the same ethnic groups. You have uh, lots of groups from Northern Thailand, from, from parts of Myanmar, who live there and uh, uh, a foreigner community from, from Europe and, and uh, North America. Um, but Chiang Mai is more of a, uh, it's a tourist destination and not, not like, not like Bangkok, which is kind of famous for nightclubs and that sort of stuff. It's more for, uh, you go, you go to Chiang Mai to go up into the mountains and stay at like a wellness uh, resort or something like that. It's, it's kind of it's cool. It's green. It, 
rains a lot in the in the wet season, but it's kind of nice and peaceful. Mesa, you've got mountains close by, but it's uh, it's it's, got, it's it's more of a wild west feel. That's the best yeah, way I could describe yeah. it. Oh, I think and, one of the things that kind of illustrates that for me at least is you know Mesa and and most of the areas around that area in Thailand are are pretty rural. You know, it still has this kind of uh, the way that we, I think, in the West would look at it is older way of life, whereas in Chiang Mai, you can't turn around without hitting a shopping mall right. anymore. Right, yes. <laughs> yes, for sure. I guess one one other big difference, too, is Mesot is there, there is like a, I guess you could call it an expat community there, too. But the expat, expat community in Mesot are, it's more people who are um, related to humanitarian work because of uh, refugee camps that have been on the border for a long time. So you have people that are there to work with refugees, people that are there to work with um, migrants, maybe working at schools or in the healthcare uh, with public health and that sort of thing. That's kind of how I wound up there too. Yeah. But but the, but it's not as, as developed as Chiang Mai by any means. I think Chiang Mai has like six really nice fancy malls and quite a few international schools and things of that nature. It was Mesot does not have that. Yeah, and a very large uh, population of expats who are there just sort of working remotely or were before the pandemic I guess now I have no idea how it is now uh, but yeah when I was there I was working I was working on um, a UN project that was based in Bangkok but I was kind of like moving my way around the country but I was surrounded at the the place I went to you know get internet and work by digital nomads yes. who are folks often in the tech industry, but other industries too, that just kind of travel around the world working on their laptops when they can. And definitely a different vibe than the humanitarian work, which those, I think you guys are cooler, but you know, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> but Chiang Mai is definitely a nice place to sit in my coffee shop and, uh, and do some yeah. work. It definitely is. No, actually the place I found to work there was really, really nice. <laughs> Lots of big windows, so that was cool. But cool. So. That gives us a, a little bit of a view into the region that we're talking about, but I want to make sure our listeners kind of understand where it is that we're talking about. So Southeast Asia is usually defined as being between India and China. And that's not exactly the case. The border of Southeast Asia on the east side is the Philippines, which sticks out into the Pacific Ocean a little bit. And then on the west side, uh, Myanmar is the furthest west, um, but then also Malaysia kind of brings down the, the lower part. So those places are geographically more or less between India and China, but culturally, these are places that are very much influenced by those two big powerhouses over history, too. And your work, I believe, is kind of in the Golden Triangle area. So that is this place where Thailand, Laos, and Myanmar meet. And then in Cambodia as well, which is on the other side of Thailand. But that's that's kind of a separate deal. So I think most of your work is either in or near that Golden Triangle area. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, that's correct. All right. Cool. So tell us a little bit about that. Why is this region a place where malaria is still very prevalent and very much a problem? Yeah, it's, um, so it's, I'm going to give you a relatively uh, short and easy answer, but the reality is that it's quite complex. But in some ways, some ways, I guess, I guess in some ways it's not. It, uh, malaria 
especially Falsampera malaria, the one that's really deadly, it just really thrives on the edges of, of society. So if you have places where healthcare facilities aren't, aren't functioning very well or don't even exist or uh, where it's hard for people to get to a doctor to get diagnosed and treated, those, those are the places where, where falciparum malaria really just thrives. And so, so if, you look at a, if you look at a map of malaria in Southeast Asia, um, Thailand, Thailand, which has a pretty strong healthcare system, Thailand almost has no malaria, um, but where it does have malaria is along international borders with Myanmar, with Laos and Cambodia. Um, and, and the reason is in those, in, in those nations, there are uh, large chunks of the country that still don't have good healthcare facilities. And so those places are kind of hot spots for malaria and you get some spillover into Thailand from those places because of, uh, of movement of humans and uh, likely because of mosquitoes too. Mosquitoes don't pay much attention to international borders. So really, I, I think that has a lot to do with it. It's, there's, as I said, there's more complexity to it than that, but, but basically that's, that's, that's a short answer. So tell us a bit about why these border places are places where these diseases like malaria are still coming up. Yeah. Okay. So I'll start with with uh, Myanmar, which used to be used to be named Burma and has since been formally changed to Myanmar. It's been there, there's been a civil conflict in Myanmar for a very long time, and on the border with Thailand, the biggest group there is the uh, the Karen, uh, the Karen ethnicity, and the, there's a state called Karen State, and the Karen have been fighting for their own country for a very long time. Uh, there's been a some some form of civil war there for over half a century. And that has resulted in a lack of infrastructure, a uh, lack of uh, health services, big population movements, refugee camps, IDP camps, it's internally displaced camps. Um, and all, all of this kind of a, a situation where, where malaria and other diseases just continue to thrive, uh, largely because of a lack of good access to healthcare. It, it is changing a bit more recently, but you still have little pockets of, of places that still have quite a bit of malaria, um, but it, it is decreasing quite a bit recently. I could move over to to Cambodia as well. So you jump on the other side of Thailand, um, and you have a similar, in, in some ways, a similar situation. They, uh, of course, had a genocide. The Khmer Rouge took over and, and killed many, many, many people. And one last stronghold for that Khmer Rouge after they were defeated was along the border with Thailand in a, in a place uh, within Battambang province, um, in a place that's now called Pailin province. And that that's kind of been a, it was a stronghold for the remaining Khmer Rouge, but also it was a, a, another one of these kind of wacky border areas where you had lots of ruby mining and, and all sorts of other strange things going on. And it, it has kind of remained as a, a hotspot for malaria as well. Yeah, I'd like to expand on that a little bit for our listeners, because the NGO that I was working for in Cambodia, the Documentation Center of Cambodia, actually is the premier research institute for Khmer Rouge research in the country and probably in the world, actually. So I think most Americans, you know, they've heard of the Khmer Rouge. They know it was bad, but they might not know much else besides that. So I want to take a minute to give us a little history lesson about this. So Cambodia was part of the French colony until the 1950s. And then they gained independence, but very shortly after that got kind of swept up in the Vietnam War. And there was unrest and bombings and all sorts of nasty stuff going on in Cambodia through the 1960s leading up to a coup that ousted their king in 1970. 
then they had a five-year civil war, and then the Khmer Rouge came into power. So this was a group of individuals who were Cambodian but had learned a lot about communism in France and wanted to try building this agrarian utopia where everyone would farm and everything would be, you know, great like it used to be thousands of years ago. That was the idea anyway. But what actually happened when they came to power in 1975 was that the leaders, well, A, killed a lot of people who they thought were political opponents that were brought into prisons like Tolsleng, uh, which is one in Phnom Penh, the capital. But really the majority of the deaths during the Khmer Rouge time were from starvation or being worked to death in these work camps that were out in the country. Because even though the leaders and you know leaders out in these more rural areas wanted to create this farming country, none of them really knew how to do it. And the same was true for a lot of the people who had come from the cities working in the camps. So 1.7 to 2.3 million people died during that time, mostly by starving to death. And then the Khmer Rouge actually left power in 1979 when the Vietnamese came and took over the country until the 1990s. So really, at the end of the day, the current government in Cambodia has only been in place for about 25 years which is less time than the time that they were basically at war before that. And so I feel like that example kind of illustrates for us what we're dealing with, why it's so hard to build a healthcare system when the average age in your country is only about 25, uh, because they're dealing with so many things that have happened over this time. And, and I think that that's, similar in the rest of the region. Is that kind of what you found over there, Daniel, that most most of this is coming out of unrest that's been going on for decades? Yes, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, a lot of it points back to colonialism and it's played out in slightly different ways because of different contexts in different countries, but the effect of colonialism has been huge, like huge throughout Southeast Asia. And, and, so, and so, yeah, so thinking about Cambodia in particular, one of the, the field staff that we work with, uh, he's a, a doctor, and he was telling me about, you know, surviving, surviving the, the Khmer Rouge genocide and coming out of it. And they, they had targeted intellectuals during this process, too. So lawyers, doctors, uh, people who seemed to be doing well, like people who had advanced degrees and that sort of thing, um, they were all targeted uh, and, and killed. And so at the time... Coming out of that afterwards, he was selected as one of three people who had become the new doctors for the country afterwards, and there was nobody to train them to be doctors, right? So, so they went through medical school essentially on their own, just reading books and, and learning what they could and with help from, from uh, Vietnamese and, and, and likely others. And I think the, the impact of that, for, first, just like the collective trauma for people who've gone through that, if you could imagine almost an entire generation of a nation that has uh, PTSD, um, but then also just the lack of the education and, and that sort of thing that comes out of it, right? You, lo you lost all of your, your intellectual leaders. Right? Like, um, that, that just has a major impact. It's, it's, it's really, hard to, uh, really hard to overcome. It takes time. It does. And, and there hasn't been a lot of time. And while Cambodia has been lucky doesn't seem like the right word given their history, but 
at least over the last 25 years or a little bit longer than that now has had a stable government. That hasn't been the case in a lot of these places. I think we just heard this week about news in Myanmar of their recent coup and some of the things that are coming out of that. And Myanmar is still dealing with a lot of this unrest. Is is that something that you experienced while you were there, like firsthand? Yes. Yeah. So we, we had to, I, I mean, first, first off, the reason I was based in Thailand um, while working mostly in Myanmar at that time um, was because it's, it's quite nice to live in Thailand. Uh, there, are, there are places in Myanmar that are really nice too. And I, I love the, the, the scenery is beautiful. The people are great, but it's just, uh, there's a lot of unrest and, and conflict and it's less, less well developed. So having my family there, for example, would have been quite difficult. We, we spent time there, but, but raising, uh, raising my child there would have been very difficult, uh, much, much safer in Thailand. And, and it's, it, it is similar. You, you don't have the, it's, it's not as easy to point to one group like the Khmer Rouge and how they just kind of tried to wipe out like all the intellectuals. Um, you have lots of different ethnic groups that have their own militias or their own military organizations, uh, many of whom want their own nation. And that that's really complicated in Myanmar. And that's a little bit different from what you see in Cambodia. Um, but it, it absolutely has a major impact on trying to do anything there. And so so for us, we were doing lots of cross-border work, right? So we get we get funding to do malaria projects and then we, we, we drive up and down the border and cross the border and go in and work with communities that don't have malaria services. But around the time that I was living there, you had a switch to at least a, a move towards or a more democratic government there. So Aung San Suu Kyi was elected. They let her out of house arrest after I don't even remember how long, many, many years. Um, and so there, were, there was like a move for, uh, it looked really positive, a really positive move. What that meant for funding for humanitarian work and, and public health work was that um, increasingly these uh, in, international organizations like the WHO and the Global Fund, they wanted to fund groups that were going straight into the government and working directly for the government and, and stopped funding cross-border groups. They, they wanted to legitimize the government, um, which makes some sense too. Um, but now they must be in a lot of trouble because uh, again, we've had a coup in the last couple of weeks The military has taken back over. And so essentially now if you're funding things that are going through the government, that money's going straight into the military that's taken over taken over the government and, and has has not stopped fighting on the border with Thailand, the Korean people, and on the other border with Bangladesh, the, the, the Rohingya people. And so it's just it's just incredibly complex. There's no way to, I guess that's the only way I could really describe it. It's just incredibly complex and, and difficult. Yeah, definitely. I, I remember when I was in Cambodia, so I was working on documenting the Khmer Rouge tribunal while I was there, which is still going on, and talking to a lot of lawyers and judges who work in international tribunals, others that have happened, like what happened in Rwanda and in Bosnia, and some of them were heading over to work on the investigative mechanism, looking into what happened with the Rohingya massacre a few years back. And it really does bring home to you hearing about these things, how now it all is, how much these sorts of atrocity type things are still happening to people around the world and particularly in Southeast Asia. So I want to take a minute, though, while we have you to talk about dengue, because we've talked a bit about malaria, which I know is kind of your, your first focus, but you also do a lot of work on dengue and other mosquito-borne illnesses in this area. And I think most of our listeners probably have a sense of what malaria is, but probably not as much of dengue. So 
If I remember correctly, the mosquitoes that spread dengue are the same ones that spread Zika from the outbreak a few years ago. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Great. The World Health Organization has noted that they think about 400 million people around the world contract dengue a year, which, by the way, listeners, is about four times as many as have had COVID-19 since it started last year. And dengue was far and away the thing that I was most scared about when I lived in Southeast Asia because it's very prevalent in the region. And I've known people who came very close to dying from it, and it does kill thousands of people a year. So talk to us a little bit about dengue and what's going on with that and why we're not hearing more about it here in the U.S. Yeah, I, so it, it is. It's, it, it must be the world's most... Uh most prevalent arbovirus. Um, and the, the mosquitoes that spread it, these Aedes mosquitoes, they're different from the mosquitoes that spread malaria in that they tend to thrive in urban environments, right? So, uh, so as you have much of Southeast Asia kind of urbanizing, which is a combination of the landscape changing, people are uh, you know, building up these, uh, there's lots of concrete and streets and, and buildings and that sort of thing. Um, so you have more of that landscape that these mosquitoes thrive in. And then you also have a lot of rural to urban migration. So people moving to, to urban places so that they can get a, or hope to get a better job and that sort of thing. And you just wind up with more people coming into contact with more of these mosquitoes that spread it. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, living in Southeast Asia, is just something that you kind of deal with. It's, uh, it's not like when you're in Thailand, you don't, most of the places you don't need to worry about malaria, but dinghy is everywhere. And most people who are an adult have already had dinghy and have some immunity to it unless they, unless they uh, become infected with a new strain, which tends to happen every three or four years or so. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's an increasing problem. Um, it's when, when you have it, I've, I've had it at least once. Uh, when you have it, it's kind of like a bad flu. Uh, you, you tend to have like a bad headache. It kind of feels like you've got a headache behind your eyeballs. I don't know how to explain it otherwise. Uh, you get a really high fever. Uh, a lot of people uh, get a rash afterwards, like several weeks later. That's that's what happened to me, and it just it just doesn't make you feel very well. Um, and and reinfection uh, with a different strain can make you even much more much more ill than than the first time around. So, so you, you probably have immunity to one strain, but if you get infected by another strain in the next year or so, then you could become like deathly ill. The reason people don't hear about it, I, I think it's just not in our backyards yet, but it could be. We have the mosquitoes even here in Orange County, so it wouldn't surprise me with a change in climate if we eventually have, you start seeing a lot more dengue fever in the U.S. as well. Well, I hope we finish this whole COVID pandemic soon so that you can get back to saving us from dengue, because <laughs> that's definitely something I have a personal stake in. And uh, I... There's another one, too. Uh, so it's dengue. Uh, so Edie's mosquitoes, dengue, they, they spread dengue, they spread chikungunya and, and Zika. So Z Zika had everybody freaked out a couple of years ago because of for pregnant women who have children with microcephaly. Uh, chikungunya has similar, it has similar symptoms to dengue, except it's a little bit worse. So you end up with like like uh, arthritis, like in your joints, and, and it can last for a very long time, even after, after you've recovered from it. Yeah, you know, I'd never even heard of chikungunya until I went to Guatemala a few years ago. Uh, how prevalent is that one around the world? We don't really know is, a, is the honest answer. Um, in 2019, there were major outbreaks of a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, 80s-born disease. So that was kind of like a, a dengue cases everywhere were through the roof. Um, uh, at the same time, you had chikungunya outbreaks that were 
kind of through the roof too. And the symptoms, the symptoms for dengue and chikungunya are relatively similar, except for chikungunya tends to be a little bit more severe. It, it, it's hard to tell the difference. And a lot of times when you're being diagnosed with one or the other, it's, or especially for dengue, it's not a confirmed diagnosis. It's, you, you show up at a remote clinic somewhere and you've got this high fever, you've got a headache, and you wind up having a rash. And I say, oh, well, you know, it's dengue season. This person lives in a place with dengue, has all the symptoms. We're going to diagnose this as dengue, but it doesn't mean that you've actually had a confirmed diagnosis, right? Um, so it could just as well be chikungunya and you just don't know it. Uh, right. So until you start really looking, it's hard to say. So the real answer is we don't know, honestly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and to give our listeners a sense of, of what we're talking about when we talk about field hospitals, I actually, I know we said we weren't going to talk about COVID, but I actually, the first time I got tested for COVID-19 was in Cambodia. It was in March. Uh, it ended up being about a week before we ended up evacuating back to the United States, which side note, I regret immensely because Cambodia, even with all of these other diseases, has had less than 500 cases total in that time. Whereas here in California, we're in the millions. But I got tested in one of these field hospitals, and it was a nicer one because I was in Siem Reap, which is the biggest tourist destination in Cambodia. And so, you know, this is this is the hospital that's in one of the more affluent areas of Cambodia, although affluent may be a strong word. Uh, and still, I was waiting in the sun in 90 degree heat behind the tuberculosis ward to be tested. There was no sanitizing done in the area. I sat in the same chair as the person who was also being tested before me without any kind of cleaning in between. And looking into the buildings inside, you know, they're open to the air. There's no air conditioning. Like these are not <laughs> the same kinds of conditions that we experience in the US. And there are definitely hospitals that are different. Like you said, Bangkok is actually a, a kind of a destination for people in the area who need to have medical procedures done. I went to a very nice hospital in Phnom Penh for other conditions. I had a, a parasite when I was there and they treated me really well. But a lot of these places kind of more out in the field are, they don't have a lot to work with, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. Um, so I feel like that perhaps illustrates why we don't have a better idea of where these things are coming from. For sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a lot of, I feel like a lot of global health work is actually, it's just about doing as much as you can with very little. Honestly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to end us on a high note after all of these talks about you know, diseases that can kill us and genocide and all that fun stuff. So let's talk a little bit about holidays in Thailand because they're amazing. And sure. so, so living in Chiang Mai, there are a lot of, of big festivals that are kind of centered there. It's known as the cultural center of Thailand. So why don't you tell us about your favorite? Yeah, so my, my, I think my favorite holiday is Roy Katong. And if, if you kind of look into the history, it's, 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 it's not clear where it comes from. But essentially, it's in, it's in, the, it's in the fall 
Um, so the weather's really nice. You've just come through the rainy season. Their, their rainy season corresponds to our summer. Um, and so at the end of the rainy season, Chiang Mai is just fluorescent green. Um, and you're going into like October, November, and it's nice and cool. And it's just, it's just the best time of the year to be there. And this, this holiday falls within that time. And it's, a, it, it's celebrated on a full moon. And basically what people do is they make these little rafts like the size of maybe both of your hands out of like banana leaves and some flowers and things like that. And they put them in the water and they just float down the river, sometimes, uh, usually with candles on them as well. And it's just, it's really beautiful. Yeah. At the same time, there's another holiday that uh, I think it's Pingying. I, I forget the name of it, but Yipeng, <laughs> yes. So, so it, it roughly corresponds with Orca Tong. And this is the one where they do the, the, the lantern balloon things. Um, and that, that one's kind of beautiful too, but I'm, I'm less fond of it because I wound up getting stuck at airports all the time because the, the air balloons are kind of like fire bombs for airplanes. So they have to shut down the airports if they, if they start floating too close to them. Um, but it's just, it's, it's just a beautiful time of year and it's a beautiful holiday. Yeah. yeah, I actually went to Chiang Mai for Yipeng and Loi Katong too, and I was so excited because I, I'm a huge Disney fan, and I had I had seen the floating lanterns and pictures and stuff before I watched Rapunzel, but of course after seeing that I even more wanted to go, and I liked the lanterns floating, floating up into the air, but they... They do definitely <laughs> cause a lot of traffic, both in the air and in the city. It was, well, let's just say it didn't happen during COVID. And if it had, it would have been a super spreader event. <laughs> but my favorite Thai holiday is actually their new year, which happens in April, which is the hottest time of the year in Southeast Asia. It, it's in the 90s and hundreds and really humid and pretty miserable, but Songkran, which is the Thai New Year, is, it's like a giant water fight over the entire country. So you go out into the streets and people have water guns or hoses or buckets full of water. I actually saw one person there with a power washer he got me pretty good. <laughs> and they'll just throw water on people who are heading down the street. And so, you know, you could walk, but a lot of people will get on motorbikes, which are very, very popular in Southeast Asia, or, or on trucks or in tuk-tuks, and head down the street, and it's just a line of people throwing water on you. And since it's so hot, it's great to have that to kind of cool off, but it's also just... It's so much fun. <laughs> but I experienced that in a more rural area in Samui, which is an island. And it's, you know, there's a lot of expats there, a lot of tourists. It's not quite as insane as some of the cities. And you experienced this in Chiang Mai. And when we chatted before, you let me know that your younger son was actually born during the festival, which sounds insane to me. Like, I'm amazed that you are all still alive. So can yes, you tell us a, a little concern. bit about that? Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I should know that the, a lot of people do die in traffic accidents during during Songkran, but yeah, it, it's awesome. it, it is a, I mean, in some ways it's a, if, if you can celebrate it in a, in a rural area, I, I think it's also a beautiful holiday. I, I should note that they, they do celebrate something similar in, in Myanmar and Laos and, and uh, Cambodia as well. It's just nowhere near, it's nowhere near the same it's level as, as what they do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a water festival that corresponds with their, with their New Year's as well. Um, but yeah, in Thailand, they take it to a whole new level, including ice water. That'll ice when they're throwing ice water yeah. on you at 95 degrees that'll that gets your attention that wasn't as much fun i'm not right. gonna lie <laughs> so, so yeah chiang mai people just 
they, they, they travel from all over the place to Chiang Mai to, to celebrate this. And they especially pack the, 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 the center of Chiang Mai is, is the old town and there are some moats and it's, it was the capital of the old Lana kingdom. So it was a, a separate nation at one point. And right in the middle there, you've got this, this square, you've got the old uh, walls to the old um, uh, fortress. And around that, you've got these moats and people just kind of crowd in around that for, for, for Songkran. And it's just packed. It's hard to drive through, almost impossible to drive through. And, and so, yeah, we, um, so my, my youngest uh, son, Bodhi, he was born there. And the hospital is right next to the square. And so we were, we were quite concerned about, you know, when the due date would come and that sort of thing, because if it happens right in the middle of Songkran, which goes over several days, um, if it happens right in the middle, then, then we might not even be able to drive into it. We're thinking, do we need to helicopter? We're going to have to helicopter oh, yeah. in or, you know, like what in, how in the world are we even going to get there? But fortunately, my, my, my wife, Amber, she, she went into labor late at night. I think, I think it was right at the beginning of it. And so we didn't have the crowds just yet. And we were able to go later at night and and kind of lucked out it was still in Songkran but but we uh we were able to miss it a bit yeah no I'm glad you guys are okay because yeah trying to just trying to get a pregnant person onto a vehicle during that time sounds really scary (laughs) just sitting at the just sitting at the hospital there people just there are motorcycle accidents, right? The roads are completely wet. And so people are slipping and sliding all over the place on the motorcycles. And so while you're sitting in the hospital, uh, you just see people walking in with, you know, bashed up elbows and, and ice packs on their knees and you know, all sorts of all sorts of accidents with motorbikes that, that have happened because of all the festivities. Yeah. But in my opinion, totally worth it. It yeah, is, it's fun. Yeah. It is unlike anything I've ever experienced anywhere else. <laughs> All right. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about all of your great work that you're doing in Southeast Asia and ah, taking this time to have a break from COVID. It's been fun. Yeah. And I look forward to when we can travel again so I can go back. That too. Uh. So <laughs> so uh, hopefully our listeners have some new places on their own bucket lists. But for now, we will sign off and hope hope that we're able to travel again very soon. The UCI podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. Please subscribe to the UCI podcast wherever you listen.